the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be talking to Chupi Sweetman, who has raised almost €4 million Euro to fund the expansion of her jewellery business. She's planning to take the brand global and talks me through her plans. In the second part of the show, Barry Halloran of the Irish Times will talk to me about energy prices. Why are multinationals getting a better deal on their energy prices? And when will gas prices start to come down for householders? But first, the entrepreneur Chuppie Sweetman, whose jewellery brand is 10 years old. This week, the company announced new funding and intends to go global. She joined me in the studio to explain her plan. Here we go. Now, Chupi Sweetman, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Now, you've just raised some money, 3.75 million euro. Tell us what you're going to do with it. We are going to go change the world. So um, I think a huge part of Chupi, which we've built lovingly over the last few years, is really we want to disrupt the diamond industry. It's been so about smoky rooms, closed doors, the madman-esque experience. Um, whereas for Chupi, we're in the business of love, hope and everything in between. So we want to take that. We're global already, but we want to make a bigger impact. Now, you're in the heirloom jewellery business. Just tell us what that is exactly. We basically mark the biggest moments in people's lives. So that's why I'd always say love, hope and everything in between. When you think about diamonds, you think engagement, wedding, which are really important moments for our customer and community. But equally, there's love and loss. There's the day you get the amazing promotion. There's the day you have your baby. There's the day you leave the terrible relationship. And there's the day you leave the terrible job. And so there's People really... the jewellery for leaving relationships? Oh my God, the divorce ring. It's a whole new category. Well, because it's a whole new moment happening in our lives. And so we would be there for the biggest moments in our community's lives. And that's heirloom, really. Okay. Tell me more about the divorce ring. Uh, what is it? How much does it cost? So think about the moment. So you've the, you left the relationship. And for most people, when you get when you fall in love, when you get married, when you get engaged, you choose those pieces thinking of heirlooms of your next generation. I fell in love with fine jewellery. I worked in commercial fashion at the time. And my boyfriend, then boyfriend, her husband, proposed. And I remember wearing my engagement ring for the first time and thinking... I'm wearing a piece of the future. This is something as my yet fictitious daughter at that stage, it's over a decade ago, is going to wear one day. Jewellery is like nothing else. It's going to last for lifetimes. It's been worn for 5,000 years. It's going to be worn for another 5,000 years. So when you get married, when you fall in love, you choose those pieces thinking you're going to spend the rest of your life wearing them. And then things happen. Things change. And so people take off their jewellery, those kind of big moments, engagement, wedding, eternities, put them away for the kids. And suddenly they feel bereft. And it's been a moment that's traditionally been really underserved by the jewellery market. And so people will come in and buy their divorce rings, buy a new eternity, buy that celebration of the next decade for themselves. Not just the romantic love, but self-love and all the other bits in between. Okay. So how many divorce rings are you doing each year? It's pretty significant. Um, So we would categorise them into the rings you buy yourself. So about something in the region of about 5 to 10% of what we do is those big significant ring moments for women buying them for themselves. Okay. Now, you were born on a significant occasion, weren't you, St. Valentine's Day? I was literally born branded. So I was born on Valentine's Day and called Chupi. I don't think I'd many, my poor economist father, I don't think I'd many options but to go and starting a jewellery brand was literally meant to be. So where did the passion for this uh, come from? Because you mentioned that your uh, father is an economist. I think you're from a family of economists. I am. So where did the fashion, and you were in clothing before jewellery. I always think, um, if you imagine the best of Ireland, is almost technology, storytelling, and numbers. 
those three things that are huge big passions that you can see across the Irish economy and they're just they're the things I've loved most in the world so my mum is a writer and a journalist dad works in economics but is an economist formerly with the World Bank and I think I always had a passion for beautiful things made well but equally a really strong desire for global for scaling for growth I always think you can differentiate between an artist and a designer so artists create beautiful pieces that hang on the wall one-offs whereas design is about creative problem solving so in the same way, when you're designing a solution, you're designing. So our job is to figure out at Cheapy, what do you give the person you love most in the world? How do you mark that moment? What do you celebrate with yourself when you've just gotten that phenomenal job you've been working so hard for? So I really took something I was passionate about, that creative problem solving, and brought it to, I worked in fast fashion first. I was solving the Friday night problem. What do you wear on Friday night? And so that was a huge, that loved it, had a quarter life crisis and really thought, actually, there's something incredibly exciting in jewellery. I knew even then, so I started my career very young. I started at 21. I was scouted out of university to go design for one of the biggest brands on the high street. And I thought, did it for six years, loved it. And I thought, I knew I didn't want to do it when I grew up. And I fell in love really with this idea of jewellery, that it is a forever piece. It's such an exciting thing to get to do as a designer, as a business. So for Cheapy, we're thinking not about the next five years, but the next decade and the next 50 years, because our pieces will be worn in for 50 years and generations to come. Just going back to the clothing, you were you were making clothes that were being sold in Topshop, is that right? I was. I worked with Topshop and the Arcadia Group back in 2005, which feels a million years ago now. So Philip Green? Philip Green, Topshop. yeah. Did I you was, ever meet him? Um, briefly and Jane Shepherdson would have been their creative director at the time it was their Kate Moss era you know it was brilliant they had an incredible vision they understood the problem they were solving which was Friday night mm. and that was an amazing thing it was very very heavily commercial so I came out of uni 21 very you know having run a tiny little label myself since I was 17 a proper entrepreneur um, but what I learned in with Topshop and with Arcadia was commercial we were on three week targets so you had three weeks to hit your target. So I was designing a collection for them and running a label. And you had three weeks to hit your targets. If you didn't hit them, you were out. I did that for six years. Well, it must have been quite stressful, quite pressured. Incredible. It was such an amazing opportunity. I think um, it took me through commercial design, which is what really excites me. I've always loved scale. You know, I got to do a global piece with with the guys in Topshop. And so when we started Chupi, we started digital first, knowing we were going to scale a global business. So what turned you off fast fashion? It's a wonderful thing to get to do at a certain point in your life. But I realised ultimately I was designing for landfill. If you imagine the end use of a fast fashion garment, you solve the problem. You make someone feel amazing on Friday night. By Monday morning, they're going, oh, I need something new. And so we were a payday treat rather than solving something much bigger. And so when I step back, if you imagine kind of that, you know, recession piece, we're back 2011, 2012, was really looking at a lot of our friends were leaving. We were that generation who were, I remember those immortal words, we all partied. And I remember looking around at my friends and going, we probably didn't. We were at the very start of our careers, just heads down, working really hard. And a lot of our friends were choosing to leave. And my husband and I sat back and went, why can't we build a global business out of Ireland? There's lots of, there's community, there's passion, there's talent here. Let's go and build something worth working for. So it was really about scaling Chupi was like, yeah, let's build something that's worth working for here and let's stay in Ireland and do it. And I think like many entrepreneurs, we weighed up the balance and went, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? And we went, well, we could lose everything. But we were at the right time to do it. We were post, as I remember writing um, to our then landlord saying we were post-partying pre-children and we're the perfect tenants. And I negotiated a 30% discount on the house we rented, which enabled us to have one more room than we could have afforded. And we started Chupi out of that spare room. And that was 10 years ago? 10 years ago this year. 
can I ask you uh, in terms of fast fashion? Do you buy any fast fashion now? You're yourself as a consumer. Are you a, a pennies customer, or you know the likes of a, a top shop or equivalents? I would say I buy very consciously. You can't work in this game, and having come through um, Kate, our chief commercial officer, is also she's ex Inditex, worked for a lot of the big giants of fast fashion, and Kate and I would say we are in a way paying back our sins for what we did and what we created. So I'm not saying I'm immune. I love I love fashion. I love style. I love design above all. But I try by much more consciously. So thinking about Eva Ireland, about some of the incredible designers in Ireland, and so I, I try and hold a balance. Some fast fashion gets in, but I'm also thinking about how and what I'm wearing and the impact of it. So what was the inspiration? What was the plan behind uh, Chupi uh, to begin with? What did you want to achieve? I wanted to grow a global jewellery brand. And I think for me, I think you can't grow up in Ireland on the literally the edge of the Atlantic without thinking either you want to do something beautiful at home or you want to do something absolutely global. There isn't a kind of safe, our home market is very, very small. So there isn't, uh, you know, there's not kind of an easy, if you're in the US, it's easy. You just think about the US and you expand across the US. Whereas for us, it was always, let's do the global piece. Very much started out with Chupi. Um, We were mid-market, affordable luxury, still in that kind of payday treat piece, sold through some incredible partners around the globe. We were with Macy's and the like. And then in 2016, when the Brexit vote happened, I would say, um, so I said family of economists, we're in the business of doom. So the family business is doom. So it's always looking at the next recession, the next challenge, the next opportunity. And in 2016, with the Brexit vote, I looked at the business we'd built and realised that actually, in a way, I'd repeated some of the mistakes of my earlier career. And I'd built a, it was a direct consumer brand. So we had an incredible audience we spoke directly to, but we were also um, at a very low price point. And I thought, okay, well, what do I really value about the business? So at that point, it was manufactured on everything we made, was made in Ireland. And I was like, I want to hold that. I really value, we've got this incredible relationship with our consumers. I really value that. Our community are really part of it. We're really good at storytelling. Let's take that and let's take it into luxury and fine jewellery. So in 2017, we moved into solid gold and diamonds, took our kind of 5x or average order value over the over those few years and really built an heirloom business where we are not, we're about the biggest moments in your life. And that's been a really incredible transition of building this business. So cheapy as it exists today is five years old. Okay, so and is that entirely around recycled gold and recycled diamonds or or not? Hugely a part of what we do. So I would say um, a big part of of, the, of uh, our fundraise and why we're here today is essentially we recognised a massive opportunity in the fine jewellery market. So fine jewellery at present is 80% unbranded. So McKinsey um, is forecasting up until 2025, 80% of the sector will be unbranded, which is insane. Tell me another consumer sector where 80% of what is in the market has no brand. And that's because it's hugely been very traditional. It's been very, um, you know, mom and pop kind of smaller brands. But actually today's consumer, and I think I actually really like the description, people are buying experiences, not things. And that really explains why brands are so important because we want alignment. We want to buy, I want my engagement ring to come from someone who believes in what I believe, who values what I value. And so for us, sustainability, you know, that's a huge part of our, I want my daughter to grow up in a world that exists for a start. I think that'd be a really nice kind of basis point to work off of. But sustainability is such an important part. So we are 100% recycled gold, hit that two years ago. So we use post-industry gold. So gold that is coming out of industrial uh, uses and comes back and has a second life with us. Gold is fascinating metal. So it's it can be recycled forever. So there's no need. We could literally stop mining tomorrow and just use what we have above Earth. And so 100% recycled gold. We do a lot of recycled diamonds. Again, a commodity we don't need to mine anymore. And then we've got some exciting things like lab-grown diamonds. 
So we're partnering on our next collection with diamonds that are created. So you take a seed of a, of a mine diamond, a tiny sliver, and you subject it to the same light, heat and a density and you can grow a diamond that's chemically and molecularly identical to a mined diamond. And they're using carbon captured from the atmosphere to deliver those. It's just such an exciting time to be working in an industry that has traditionally uh, not been at the forefront of change. Okay, and you're working on this. That sounds very interesting. Are others uh, doing it as well or are you leading the herd on this? I would say uh, Pioneer is always an interesting one. Do you want to be a pioneer or do you want a proven market? So that's the that's the economist in me. There are others in our space. There are some brilliant brands doing amazing things. We are at the forefront, but we're not necessarily leading the pack. We don't need to go and deliver insane innovation. We're working with people delivering phenomenal innovation. So we, we aren't growing our own diamonds. We're partnering with brilliant laboratories who are doing the diamond growing for us and they're producing in. So we're definitely the cutting edge of fine jewellery, but not looking to be the cutting edge of development of growing diamonds. This is something you could do in a 3D printer. I was reading last week, Marco Pierre White, the chef, the British chef, talking about making various uh, meat products in a 3D printer, which sounds weird. Can you do, do I'm not sure I'd be eating 3D? them just yet. Give me a little bit of time before I'm there. So what's, we actually already use 3D printing as part of our production. So we do a lot of when we're developing something new. So if you imagine we go through the design process, so I design a collection, our incredible new product development team take it to life, and we'll then use 3D printing to take what we've developed in a digital form and print it out. So we can print in gold or silver or wax, and from there we'll use those models, but we're not using on a, it's not yet there on a commercial scale. So when we're when we're making, we're making everything locally. So just down the road, we cast using a method called loss wax casting that has been around since the ancient Egyptians. So it's a really interesting marriage of kind of really cutting edge technology. We've got augmented reality in our suite. We're really using part of our fundraise in terms of developing our blockchain capabilities. But we're at using 3D printing, but equally recognizing time honored and ancient techniques like loss wax casting. Yeah, now you describe yourself as a digital first luxury brand um, and and maybe we'll talk about the online journeys that people uh, go on with you. But it strikes me that jewellery is something that's, it's a touchy-feely type of thing and, you know, how does it look in my hand and all of that. You can't really do that online or correct me if I'm wrong, but you can't really do that online. And plus, I presume they're big purchases. I mean, what's the average price tag? So we go from 500 to 25,000 quid. So we are significant. Yes. Like we are a big moment So if you're your paying life. 25 grand, uh, you definitely want to touch and feel. Now I know you, you do have a retail outlet in Dublin in the Paris Course Centre, but you're obviously doing a lot online. We do. So we've one beautiful store in town and are going to be as part of our fundraise, we're going to be opening flagship store in London and then rolling out store and store experiences across Ireland, across the UK and then eventually into Europe and US. So physical retail plays a really powerful and important part of how we experience diamonds, how we shop for our jewellery. But actually, the world has shifted shifted so significantly. So even back in 2019, we've always seen a 50-50 split. So we would see our half of our revenue goes through our store and half of it goes through online. So we've sold into 70 countries around the world. Um, Really significant markets, obviously, UK, US, and then some of our European neighbours and Canada and Australia. But you'd be amazed. I find it fascinating. So we would be really interested in people's journey, you know, how someone comes, how your purchase journey looks like, because it's a really considered purchase buying a diamond, you know, whatever moment you're marking, it's quite a significant one. And you'll see online journeys that happen where people do the entire experience, having never spoken to a human being and can buy a five, 10, 15,000 quid ring, having never had any physical interaction. And I think our job as a brand, as a business, so um, I mentioned my husband earlier and one of my top tips for starting your, for entrepreneurs starting out is to marry your CTO. It's terribly useful. It means you have this great technological piece in-house from day one. And so I met with Brian in, in-house and all of our development and technology is in. We've 
really considered how we support that journey. So things like you can pick up your phone, you can go to chibi.com, pick up your phone and you can take a picture of your hand and try on any of our rings. So you can literally start your stack. You can go, okay, that engagement ring I love, but I already have my engagement ring. What will work with it? And instead of having to, you know, get to a physical location, you can literally try on your ring using a virtual try on. We have gorgeous um, virtual appointments. So you can book appointment for an appointment from anywhere in the world. Dial in with one of our team. They've got cutting edge technology with macro cameras. Then it means they can take you through a whole appointment and you can try on your jewellery and get to see it in literally better than real life almost because the cameras are so fine. Likewise, we've got um, incredible technology that you can size your ring from anywhere in the world. So I would say retail is part of a hybrid journey now. It's no longer about, are you shopping in store or are you shopping online? Almost certainly, you're going across all touch points. Okay, so you mentioned 70 countries that yeah. you've sold into. So how, how far flung is Chupi? We literally have the craziest places in the entire world. So we um, we track it in our, actually have a really wonderful on-site in our studio. We have a big map of the world. And every time we land a new country, because at this point with 70, we're doing pretty well, we can put a pin in a map. So you're talking about, you know, you're talking Singapore, you're talking Tokyo, you're talking right down into South Africa, you're talking crazy little islands you've never even heard of off of in, 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 the, in Indonesia. And that's been fascinating watching that expansion because very practically, we are an Irish business. We're located here. We've spent most of our time as we've scaled over the last few years with our money, our investment, our people building out in Ireland. And really where we've been doing over the last two years is building out the UK. So our marketing director, who's former Stella McCartney, is based in the UK. Our whole marketing team are now based, pretty much our whole marketing team are UK based. And it's interesting, we're already seeing the um, results of that. We just delivered our best month ever on record into the UK last year. So despite the fact that the UK is on fire, and I, I feel that my dad and dad's English, my dad and sister are based in London and mum and brother here. But UK is such an important market for us and is still delivering. You say the UK is on fire. Are you talking about the UK economy or uh, everything? <coughs> economy, politics. Well, like from a very practical point of view, you know, economics and politics are both on fire in the UK. They had a really turbulent year, you know, yeah. replacing their monarch, three prime ministers. It was an entertaining time. But for us and our community and our audience, they are really interested in what we're doing and we can see that huge growth. And for us, it's phenomenal what's happening in the UK already. So who is your typical customer? Well, look, and that's part of it is we would talk to... Um, we talk about as well uh, purchaser and user. So we would have a 50-50 split in terms of revenue, in terms of men and women shopping across us. But actually our purchaser is very highly female. So two thirds of our purchasers are women. So they're shopping and women are shopping across a much broader spectrum of moments. So what's fascinating when you talk about um, jewellery and you talk about you know lifetime values and cost of acquiring all of those metrics that you're measuring women have a really varied journey so women start their relationship with jewellery very young that first diamond can be 13, 14, 15 so the first piece you get that first piece of fine jewellery and it goes across then it's it's graduation it's promotion it's that first job it's the engagement the wedding possibly the divorce the babies in between and then that life cycle starts over again where women are marking moments for their daughters and their sons and celebrating for men it's much more clear and linear men's moments are first love big birthdays engagement wedding and babies so they're much more much less complex so we talk to our audience in different ways and serve them in different ways Right. Okay. So, tell us about this uh, new money. That it's two point seven five million, I think, in uh, venture capital essentially, Absolutely. and then a million in debt. Yeah, it from is. Permanent TSB, which is an interesting departure for for them. I would have thought. Huge. Um, 
So what are you going to use this money on? You mentioned uh, the new store in London. Um, uh, how else will you put the money to work? So if you think about it, we think about kind of the strengths. What are we really good at and where do we want to dig deeper? So retail is going to be a huge part of it. So we're going to move our current store and go ground floor in Dublin. So we want to open up a ground floor flagship, really celebrating that arrival. Um, you know, GP you as a brand, we haven't signed yet, but we're very close. Um, all going to plan will be signed in the next few months, I hope. We want to be done and dusted. We're very keen to get open as soon as possible. Uh, we're then going to open flagship in London next year. Uh, we'll be doing pop-up and then part- store and store partnerships with brands here and in the UK and Europe. Then technology, that's a hugely important part of what we do. I talked about retail. How we shop is now a hybrid experience. So we need to serve people at many touch points. Equally recognising Web3 is coming at us. And so we want to think about how blockchain serves us. So uh, we sit as a business on Meta's Committee for Innovation. So that covers augmented, virtual and mixed reality. So looking at how we're serving there. So we've just made, just in a big spec project for advancing our, we do augmented reality already, but we'd like to take it to the next level. It should be really nice. We've got a people piece. So we've got a really exceptional team here across the UK and Ireland, 50 people. We're going to be expanding and hiring a few more key people there and then it's really our marketing as well that's a really important one for us how we're going to look at kind of next generation marketing and some of the key agencies and players so there's a, an interesting split across the four what is blockchain most people wonder in a hundred words blockchain is basically writing something in a book except the book is publicly accessible it's in, online it's online it, it gets very complicated and it seems terribly terribly fancy but really what it is is a public registry instead of that that registry. So if you buy a ring from us, so you buy a cheapy ring, on the inside of it, it's assayed from Dublin Castle. There's a little mark in it that says, this ring was made, made by cheapy, the quality has been checked. This is the mark of Lady Hibernia, which is the mark of Dublin Castle. And every single piece you buy is marked in Dublin Castle, as it has been for hundreds of years. Those registries are kept in the castle. So those beautiful books are kept in the castle. The next generation of that is, we want to be able to say, when you buy a ring from us, We'll give you an NFT, so of saying that you've bought a cheapy ring. This is what it is. This is the carrot of the stone. This is how it was made. This is where it was made. And you will own that forever in a public registry that says that ring is yours. As we look at expanding and growing, NFTs are going to be a way for luxury brands like us. NFTs being non-fungible tokens. Yes, exactly. And they get a lot of stick for being very silly things where they're, you know, do you want to buy a monkey picture? Who knows? Do we want to sell virtual jewellery? I don't think that's the future. But I need to, when I buy a beautiful ring, when I'm buying my 20,000 quid diamond ring, I want to know who made it. I want to have proof of ownership. I want to be able to prove that ownership to anyone who asks. I want to be able to insure it. And so blockchain for us is a way for sustainability of us saying this is where the diamond came from. We have it and it's moved through. And luxury is really looking. There's some really exciting things happening with the Aura blockchain. And yeah, but dial it back down. It's literally a public ledger. Okay, that's pretty good. Um, so if the ownership changes, let's say you hand it on to your Beauty. daughter yep. um, or you sell it, yep. uh, you get divorced, you decide, damn it, I'm going to sell it or your husband sells it, yep. uh, whatever. Does that get changed on the blockchain? We can change well? it on the blockchain. So it means that... So we'll, all of the owners of a particular will be piece of jewellery will be registered yeah. and, and like, look, publicly available to everyone? Publicly available, yeah. Or, okay. or it can be private where it can be access only. So you need to be able to access it. So for us, we're still at the exploratory stage of blockchain and what it means for us. Um, and so we'll be looking into like, look, that's going to be a two to three year project. Uh, you know, you had the guys from LVMH on talking about that 100 developers working on delivering blockchain for Louis Vuitton. So, you know, you can imagine for us, that's going to take a significant body of work, but it's going to answer many challenges that luxury is experiencing. It's a lifetime product. How do you pass it on? It's a very high value product. How do you insure it? So there's some really exciting pieces there. 
Now, you were sourcing diamonds from Russia. We were. And nasty people in Russia. They went and invaded Ukraine. Wow. And now they're persona non grata. So how has that impacted your business? So this time last year, we would have been sitting here talking about some of the diamonds we buy. And we buy across, so we buy recycled diamonds, we buy mined diamonds, and we buy lab-grown diamonds. So we buy across the whole spectrum. In terms of mined diamonds, the gold standard is the Kimberley process. So it's essentially a global process that looks at how diamonds are bought, that they don't fund conflict, that they aren't used in, uh, that they aren't used in, as political weapons. So there's, it's, you know, Look, it's not perfect by any means. I would say like many things in terms of sourcing and sustainability, it needs a lot of work, but it's as good as we have right now. So we would have bought through the Kimberley process. Buying Russia is the world's largest producer of diamonds and it's up there in terms of world's largest producers of gold. Ahead of Botswana and countries like Ahead that? Ahead of Botswana. Because it because prior to the invasion of Ukraine, you would have said Russia hold really held pretty good ethical standards. Its mining is really good. It's really clean. You know, all the things you're looking for. And so some of our diamonds would have come out of Russia. And again, say like, look, it's a challenge in terms of even origin for diamonds can sometimes be poorly managed. So we were buying diamonds, not even realizing we were buying Russian diamonds, but buying Kimberly certified diamonds. Um, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we sat down as a team and went, our job is to, we have a mission to do better. You know, we want to do business better. We are love, hope and everything in between, between marking the biggest moments in people's lives. And we want to do it responsibly. So we went as a team, okay, where are we possibly exposed? What are we buying that could potentially be coming out of Russia? Sat down with our leadership team, looked at all of the avenues. As it turns out, we were exposed on Russian diamonds and we were fine on gold because we were buying recycled. And we went, okay, we can't take this. We're going to make a decision ahead of our industry, ahead of all of the big guys, ahead of certification. And we pulled Russian diamonds out of our supplier chain. A lot of, lot of work, incredible pressure on our gold team in terms of what they do had to do in terms of sourcing. Um, it's and it's as good as we we are trying to be as good as we can be so we've done so much work to remove Russian diamonds Cartier and Tiffany the giants of our industry followed shortly afterwards so about two months later they made a move unfortunately Russian diamonds are still legal so they're one of the few commodities that haven't been banned so so many Russian goods have been blocked diamonds haven't which look I think is really shameful and an indictment that we should be you know look at what Russia is doing our job is not to fund that Okay, but you're not using Russian diamonds yourself. No, we've anymore. taken them out as far as we can, and that's it's been a really important ethical move. We can't be standing there going no blood diamonds, which is essentially a racist thing. You're know, going no African diamonds, but yeah, we'll buy the European blood diamonds. So you're ten years old. You have this yeah. new money now to invest in the business. Uh, I think you have around fifty staff. We do. Uh, revenues, uh, latest accounts, sort of showing five, five million. million. That's us. Yeah, maybe that's moved on um, since then. So what's your what's your long term goal? How big can this business get? We've got a huge ambition. I think you couldn't be sitting here. Um, and we took the money because of the ambition. We did the raise. We could have continued scaling in what our CFO calls, um, Donald's got a wonderful phrase, an aggressive organic model. We've built the business over the last year, 10 years, literally from spare room to where it is today on that just self-funded, self-financed. But we really saw an opportunity to that 80% unbranded there's a lot of movement happening in our sector. Louis Vuitton and Hennessy bought Tiffany's a few years ago. Prada have launched their own fine jewellery collection. There's a lot of interesting things happening in that space. We've had some very nice conversations already about where we, we would possibly sit, about what the future looks like. But I think... Um, I always think the challenge for Irish entrepreneurs is they tend to sell too early. They get out too early. They, they don't... They leave too soon. There's so much left on the table. So for us, really, over the next five years, we want to do a big, you know, we've got a big, big growth plans, kind of an eight to 10x of where we are now. We want to get our... 50 million revenues? 
Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. You can see the industry, like where the possibilities are. I'm not saying we'll be at 50 million in five years. I think it'll be another stretch to get us there. But our job is to to take the stretch and to do it. We have the team. We've got exceptional partners. You mentioned Permanent TSB. Um, they're looking to really make a mark in backing not only entrepreneurship, but female entrepreneurship. Likewise, BVP, phenomenal team. The guys have backed lots of interesting businesses. Abbey International Finance, brilliant. And then we've some fantastic angel investors coming through. Um, we sit in some communities, part of EY's Entrepreneur of the Year program, the Going for Growth program. And so between them, we went for partners, not just money, because I think money is, look, you can't have a business like Chupi with the profile we have. We've had loads of lovely offers over the years. But what I've always felt was it was about a partnership. And IBI, who were our corporate finance guys on the raise, did a fantastic job of helping us choose the right partners. And so we're looking really, it's so exciting. I'm really looking forward to delivering it now. Sell in five years? Nope, nope. Uh, we'll definitely, um, I love it. This is my baby. We made sure we took the partners we did so that we maintain management control. So uh, myself and the management team still have the majority stake. We don't imagine uh, it's my name in the box. I love it. We'll maybe sell a big portion of the business, but uh, I hope to still be here in 10, 15 years. I've had some phenomenal mentors seat on the board in a few years. Uh, and I do think my job as a founder your job as a CEO is to make sure you are the best, the brightest, the most brilliant people. I ask my board every year, am I the right CEO? So far, they tell me I'm the right CEO. One day they'll tell me I'm not and we'll hire a better one and I'll move out into the board. But I hope to still have that. Sack the board. Yeah, no, no, they're dumb. I, I hired them. I hired them for a reason. I brought them in because um, I think there's a real risk with founders, with entrepreneurs of thinking you're right. And so I actually brought in two co-founders. So built it myself, then brought my husband and uh, Brian and uh, our now Chief Commercial Officer, Kate, brought them in to sit at level with me because I felt better together. And so that's always been the mission that's taken me as far as we've grown is brilliant people. So that's how we'll continue to scale. We wish you luck, GP Sweetman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be talking to Barry Halloran of the Irish Times about energy prices. Back in a few moments. At EY... Our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. On Monday, Barry O'Halloran had a story in the Irish Times about how some big multinationals are paying less for their electricity than SME and households. He joined me in the studio this week to discuss the story, and I began by asking him exactly how much multinationals are paying and why they're getting preferential terms. Okay, Kieran. Well, what we found at the weekend was that uh, multinationals, at least some of them, appear to be getting far more preferable rates for their electricity than comparable Irish businesses and indeed than uh, the millions of families out there uh, that we hope are tuning into the business podcast. Um, the, the figures that we have show that in a period running kind of roughly from the middle of 2021 when the, the upward pressure really started on, on prices uh, into the sort of closing months of last year, multinationals were getting in and around 6 to 7 up to a maximum of 12 cent a kilowatt hour. That's the sort of basic unit in which electricity is sold to uh, users, to customers. Um, whereas the the comparable prices over the same period of time for Irish businesses, mm, 
they varied from 18 to around, uh, to as, as high as 40. Now, that, that 40, I figure, I think was quite late in the day. But in broad terms, you could say that multinationals were paying in and around an average of 8 cent, while Irish businesses were paying in and around an average of 26, 27 cent. Uh, over the same period of time, the prices that consumers were paying, that's, you know, the prices that you would be paying for your electricity, tacked up from the, I think, in the region of 25 cent up to 44, 45 cent. So a, a near enough doubling or, or a sort of an 80% increase. I okay, think. so substantial discounts being offered to the big multinationals. And is that because they're essentially buying in bulk? They, they, they use a lot of power, so they have buying power. Or is it to do with the, the way that um, this energy is acquired by the energy companies in that there's a lot of forward buying and hedging and so forth? It's a combination of those factors, or at least the, 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 the official reason is that it's a combination of those factors. In essence, big multinationals that consume a lot of energy uh, sign big forward contracts for electricity. Um, there are hedges built into those contracts. They're those are part of the terms and the conditions and that is how they ensure preferable rates what uh, the, the, the three companies that we questioned being Electric Ireland Energia and Board Gosh what they all basically pointed out was look these people buy uh, without, and they didn't I have to say they didn't comment on any individual customer what they said was these people buy large quantities of electricity in advance three year contracts um, and in a lot of the cases that we raised with them, they're saying, well, they probably bought that electricity in and around 2020 when prices were very low. So they've been benefiting from um, the low prices through the period of that contract. Um, they obviously won't discuss what happened when these people go out of contract. But you can be sure that when a big multinational that consumes a lot of energy goes out of our ends, it's, it's three or four year contract or whatever it is. It, um, it goes around and starts negotiating with all the various suppliers saying, what's the best deal you can do for me? Um, and you've, you've got to remember that, uh, like any other business, if you've got a very large customer, uh, you want to hang on to uh, that business. So I'm, I'm pretty certain that multinationals use a lot of their, um, their leverage and their muscle um, when it comes to negotiating these contracts. And I'd say some of them probably aren't above reminding uh, electricity suppliers that uh, they're very much the engine of employment and export in this country. Yeah, now we're a year on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and we saw a big spike in prices uh, post that. But the market has settled down a bit, hasn't it? And, and prices are coming down. And You've been at a wind energy conference over the last couple of days where a couple of the uh, people attending there, including Eamon Ryan, um, our Green Party uh, minister, have been suggesting that energy prices are going to fall in the near future, which would be welcome news, especially for householders. So tell us tell us what's likely to happen. Okay, well, look, the, the bottom line here, Kieran, is anyone who can tell you what's going to happen for definite in the energy market is sitting in a Caribbean island trading gas futures and making a mint. But in broad terms, the trend now appears to be with wholesale gas and electricity prices and that they're on the way down or that they've eased from peaks that they hit really during August last year uh, when there was a round of panic buying sparked mostly by Russia's turning off of the taps or closing off of the, 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 the Gazprom taps, if you like. That situation has eased. Um, so that would indicate that uh, 
domestic energy prices, the prices that listeners are paying for their uh, their gas and electricity, should start coming down. Now, bearing in mind what we've just said about multinationals, domestic supplies are also bought in, in forward markets uh, by the suppliers themselves. So what people are saying is, look, it's going to take a period of time for those for that to work through the system, but there should be an easing of prices in months to come. Uh, Noel Kniff, the, the uh, chief executive of Wind Energy Ireland, that which was hosting that two-day conference, he, I mean, he didn't put a, a specific date on it. Uh, you, you'd be crazy if you were to do that. But uh, he certainly seemed to think that prices should start coming down at some point this year. Uh, I spoke to somebody else in the energy in, industry a few weeks ago, and they seemed to think the same thing. And Eamon Ryan this morning certainly thinks that they should come down. I mean, when I asked him bluntly, do you think that uh, energy companies should start cutting their prices? He said yes, but he acknowledged um, this issue about forward buying, the fact that the electricity that we can, the electricity and gas that we consume right now was bought a few months ago at relatively expensive prices, and that has to work its way through the system. But he said the government will be monitoring it closely. But obviously... Um, I mean, if, if you were to ask any government minister, do you think energy prices should come down? Uh, I'd be very surprised if any government, if that government minister were to answer anything other than, yes, I do think energy, energy prices should come down. Don't forget, the government has been uh, returning billions in taxpayers' cash to them in, in order to ease some of this pain. And that's cash that the government could uh, conceivably put to better uses, or at least you'd hope they'd be able to put it to better uses. So... If it is coming down, any sense by how much a percentage or? If I knew that, I'd definitely be. <laughs> I would definitely be trading those gas futures at the Caribbean Caron. I really no, that that is anybody's guess. Um, and what I've noticed, and you know, I'm not casting aspersions on um, energy suppliers or, or or anyone else in 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 Irish business, but down through the years, and I'm doing this job a lot for longer than I care to remember. Um, Any time I've I've dealt with businesses where they trade where they have to hedge commodities or currencies as part of their as part of their day-to-day dealings with consumers I've always noticed the trend is that the increases seem to come thick and fast and the decreases seem to come a hell of a lot slower and uh, seem to be a hell of a lot more modest than the increases ever were so um, I wouldn't haul out much hope of a rapid return to uh, pre-2021 prices anytime soon it may happen eventually um, but uh, I wouldn't be optimistic. The one thing I would say is that energy is political, and we know energy is political because we saw what happened in the last year, and it's always been political. And uh, I think politicians need to be using their muscle now. They should be acting in the public's interest, and they should be watching all these companies, not just the ESB, which we own, but they should be watching all these companies like Hawks, and they should be jumping on them the minute they see anything amiss. Okay, Barry Halloran, thank you for joining us. Cheers. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Chippy Sweetman and Barry Halloran for joining me on the show. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Don't forget that as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. <laughs>